What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. This is Know It All, the ABCs of education, a platform of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC, where we empower our listeners with insightful information about equity in education. Welcome to Know It All, the ABCs of Education. Listen in every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern or at any time from your computer at blogtalkradio.com forward slash know it all. I'm your host, Allison R. Brown of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC. I'm a civil rights attorney with a focus on equity in public education. Keep up with me on my website at allisonbrownconsulting.com and be sure to follow Know It All at blogtalkradio.com. If you're tweeting, follow me at Allison R. Brown and tweet about the show with the hashtag KnowItAllABC. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome representatives from the Education Trust. We're talking about the state of education for Native students. The Education Trust recently released a report that puts together national data on academic performance for American Indian and Native Alaskan students. My guests today are Natasha Ushomirsky. Did I say that right, Natasha? You did. Natasha is the author of the report, and Daria Hall is also from the Education Trust. Thank you both for being on Know It All today. How are you? We're doing really well, and thanks for having us. So I wonder if you would start us off by just explaining what Education Trust is for the audience. Of course. Um, the Education Trust is a national nonprofit advocacy organization dedicated to closing the gaps in opportunity and achievement that separate low-income students and students of color from their peers. That's a big task, and we work on it in a lot of ways. We work with policymakers to align our federal and state policies with our national ideals of fairness and opportunity for all. Um, We work to identify and learn from schools that are getting high achievement for all students, regardless of race, ethnicity, income, or background, and we share those lessons with other practitioners. We work with on-the-ground advocates um, to support their work on behalf of schools and students. We work with the press um, to make sure that we have an honest, well-informed conversation about equity and achievement. And at the core of all of this work um, is data. We constantly are mining the data that's available to best understand the trends in both achievement and opportunity nationally, at the state level, the district level, and the school level. We deeply believe that the only way we are going to close gaps in achievement is to start with a very honest understanding of where we are now, map out a course for where we need to go, and learn from those places that are on the performance frontier and getting far better results for particular groups of kids. And that was the notion behind this 
state of education for Native students brief that we put together. So I wonder, Natasha, would you just walk us through some of the, the data that you found in this report, in your brief? Absolutely. Um, so when we were putting the brief together, we looked at a variety of information on student outcomes, starting from their outcomes in elementary and middle schools and going all the way through college graduation. At the elementary and middle school level, we used data from the National Assessment of Educational Progress. That is an assessment that's administered to a sample of kids in every state in the country. Um, and those data are the only, basically the best source of information that we have on student achievement nationwide, and also the only way that we have of comparing achievement of students in different states. Um, and so recently, ever since 2005, the National Assessment of Educational Progress has had a, a sub-program that looks specifically at Native student achievement. It's called the National Indian Education Study. We use data from that study to look at student outcomes, um, at Native student outcomes in fourth and eighth grade reading and math. I'll focus on fourth grade reading and eighth grade math, but the, across all of the subjects and grades, the findings were actually pretty similar. And so what we learned was, first of all, there are pretty big achievement gaps between Native students and white students in this country. Uh, in fourth grade reading, for example, about 18% of Native students were proficient in reading. Um, and as compared to about 42% of white students. Similarly, in eighth grade math, about 17% were proficient, 17% um, of Native students were proficient compared to about 43% of white students. We also think that it's really important to look at whether schools have been improving for, a group, for different groups of students because that really gives us an idea of the kind of trajectory our education system has been on for particular groups. And what we found was that while results for pretty much every major ethnic group have improved since 2005, results for Native students have actually been fairly flat ever since then. They've made less improvements than any other group. Um, and so we actually we thought that was particularly concerning. Um, at the high school level, we looked at a variety of different data sources, and one of the questions we really wanted to look into was whether students were getting access to a rigor rigorous curriculum. We know that um, one of the biggest predictors based on research of post-high school success is the intensity of the high school curriculum. Um, and so actually, after our brief was released, we got some new data from ACT that where students were asked whether they had taken a core curriculum in high school. And by core curriculum, they mean just four years of English, three years of math, social studies, and science. They don't actually distinguish um, between the kinds of classes that students take. And what they found was of all of the Native kids who took the ACT, only about 62% took a core curriculum. So uh, less than any other group, again, um, in the country. They, um, we also looked at data on, more, on access to more rigorous courses, to AP courses. And we found that Native students were more likely to go to schools that don't offer any AP than any other group of students. 
Um, so again, since we know course access is especially important, um, this is a finding that really gives us some direction in terms of what we can do to improve outcomes for kids. Um, we looked at some graduation rate data. Nationally, Native students are less likely to graduate from high school than white students. About 69% finish high school on time. Um, they're also less likely to proceed to post-secondary than white students. And of the students who do go to a four-year college, only about 40% get a bachelor's degree six years later, compared to about 62% of white students. Um, so that, that's kind of an overview of, of what we found in the brief uh, in terms of student outcomes. What we also uh, want to be clear about, though, is that all of these trends are not available, uh, are not inevitable. Um, in fact, when you look at outcomes in different states, there's a lot of variation in how Native students are doing. Um, Proficiency rates in fourth grade reading on that National Assessment of Educational Progress are pretty much three times higher in um, Oklahoma than they are in Alaska and, and Arizona. So we know that some states are doing far better by Native kids, and we certainly know that some schools are doing far better than Native students. Um, and you know that that's something that I've always appreciated about education trust data is that you know we we often get a picture of uh, how bad things can be and uh, the negative stories are told about the achievement gap and other uh, other things that impact students of color in particular in education. Uh, but I think education trust does does the work to go another step further, which is to say, but here's what work what is working. Um, these these data are not inevitable, as you said, Natasha. And so, I, you know, I, I really appreciated that in this report. And I, I will talk about in a little bit what what schools are doing well for Native students. But I wonder first if we can continue to kind of set the stage a little bit and just talk about where Native students are. So for American Indian and Alaska Native students, where are they? Um, I think, you know, an assumption is that they are in the Bureau of Indian Education Schools, BIE schools, uh, which are federally operated schools. Um, but can we talk about what, you know, that assumption? And first of all, what are BIE schools and um, what did your data find with respect to those BIE schools? Absolutely. So, um, as you mentioned, BIE is the Bureau of Indian Education, and it is part of the uh, Department of Interior. There are a small portion of schools that are serving Native students are run by the Bureau of Indian Education or directly by tribes under contract with the Bureau of Indian Education. But altogether, these schools, as we found, only serve about 7% of Native students nationwide. I think you're absolutely right. There is a general perception out there that the majority of Native kids go to these schools. In fact, 93% of Native students attend schools that are run by just regular school districts, although many of the schools are located on tribal lands. Um, in terms of outcomes for students in those schools, we actually looked at uh, the performance of Native students as a whole and did not compare performance of BIE schools versus regular public schools. However, your question couldn't be more timely because the uh, Government Accountability Office just released a report last week 
where they actually do look at the differences between Native students' performance in regular public schools versus BIE schools. And what they found, also using data from the National Assessment of Educational Progress, was that student outcomes at BIE schools were actually even lower than their outcomes at other at regular public schools. Was there speculation as to why that is? So according to the Government Accountability Office, they do go into some um, into some detail about some issues inside BIE and BIE operations. Um, we probably are not the topmost experts on that issue, so we would recommend speaking directly with them. Mm -hmm. that's, that's very interesting. So, you know, as the national conversation develops around education outcomes in this country and um, school reform, you know, I think it's important to situate Native students within that national conversation. I think they are often left out of that um, dialogue and uh, are, if ever, considered tangential to the conversation. And so I wonder if we can just kind of place them um, where they belong in the conversation and, and think about strategies for incorporating them. And one one thing that comes to mind, you know, as you're talking about access to higher level level courses and how Native students don't have the same access to advanced pro course programming that white students do. Um, a, another thing that comes to mind for me is student discipline. Um, and, you know, nationally Native students are second behind only African-American students in being suspended from school, and this comes from the, the civil rights data collection that, that is collected by the Office for Civil Rights at the Department of Education. Uh, and, you know, these are factors that would, I think, contribute to some of the stagnation that we've seen in data. W will you comment on that? Yeah, absolutely. So we know from the civil rights data collection, like you referenced, and from other kind of state-specific data sources, that students of color are far more likely to be subject to harsh disciplinary practices. Um, and in particular, more likely to be both suspended out of school and then expelled, which of course puts students out of school as well. And there's a growing body of evidence that would suggest that when given the discretion to either discipline a student or not, when you know there's not a firm policy in place about a particular disciplinary event, teachers and school administrators are more likely to discipline students of color than they are to discipline white students for that same kind of offense. Um, and it goes without saying that students can't learn if they're not in school to receive instruction. So this idea that students of color are being suspended out of school, they're being expelled, and out of school as a result far more than their white peers absolutely contributes to the achievement gap that we see. Thankfully, there is a growing kind of awareness of the problems of unfair and inequitable disciplinary policies and practices, and there are places that are starting to turn this around by, in fact, instituting 
um, disciplinary policies that are really aimed at keeping students in school um, and in the classroom where they belong and where they deserve to be in order to receive instruction. This takes, though, a lot of consistency at both the classroom level and often at the district level as well because that's where a lot of discipline policies are, you know, flow from. Um, and there needs to be um, consistency for teachers so that, you know, students who go to one classroom and act in a particular way get the same kind of response when they go to a different classroom and act in that same way. The students are quite clear about what's acceptable, what's not, and what the consequences of their behaviors are going to be, but that adults also know how um, to respond to those behaviors. They know that they're going to have backup from their administration if they do decide that they do, in fact, need to discipline a student, um, but that everyone from the teachers to the administration to the parents as well, are working to keep kids in school and learning rather than being uh, suspended or expelled. Mm -hmm. So why do you think that it is that national conversation about school reform and education reform has so far largely excluded Native students? You know, I think we have to acknowledge that there has been a, a national conversation about closing the achievement gap, certainly that um, really started with No Child Left Behind and the expectation that in order to be considered a successful school, they had to be successfully educating all groups of students. Um, I think, though, that unfortunately the reality of uh, the conversation that we're having nationally right now is that everyone says our goal is closing the achievement gap, but in far too many places were quite uncomfortable actually going further than that and having honest conversations about what leads to the achievement gap and then what we as educators, as policymakers, as communities can do to close the achievement gap. And I think that that holds, honestly, for all groups of students who find themselves on the wrong side of that gap, whether it's African American, Latino, low income, or certainly Native. Um, that said, we do know that there has not been nearly the attention um, to the, the low levels of both achievement and improvement um, to Native students that this brief aims to highlight. And that's the reason that we do this kind of work, is to really spark attention so that we can start having honest conversations and then start taking action um, to improve outcomes for kids. I will also say that while we're you know, talking about this uh, national conversation that frankly isn't kind of rich or honest enough for any group of students, if you do mm -hmm. go to communities or states where there are larger populations of Native students, there are many, many people working on behalf of those kids. So it's, this is not a kind of forgotten group of students across the board. You know, if you go to Oklahoma, if you go to New Mexico, and, you know, on and on and on, there are communities um, of parents, of advocates, of tribes who are really working to ensure that their students get the high-quality education that they need and deserve. So it's absolutely kind of incumbent on us as um, as reformers, as advocates, to learn from that on-the-ground work and try to build off of it and amplify it so that these kids can get the attention um, that they need. Mm -hmm. Just a reminder to the audience, we are talking about the state of education for Native students. 
my guests are Natasha Ushermirsky and Daria Hall of Education Trust, and we're talking about the recently released Education Trust report about the state of education for Native students. I want to turn now to what is happening for Native students that is good. Um, you know, what what are those schools that have higher populations of Native students doing to appropriately serve their student populations? Um, so, as you had pointed out earlier, we at the Ed Trust firmly believe in giving people examples of places that are serving low-income kids and kids of color successfully. We've been at this work for a long time um, because we think that it's incredibly important to both uh, make it clear that all kids can learn when they're given the opportunity to learn and also to uh, share the practices from some of these schools. Um, so every year we look for schools from around the country that serve high populations of low-income students and students of color. And then we go to those schools, visit them, and spend a couple days with them sometimes trying to understand um, what it is that they do um, and kind of drawing lessons out of that. And over the years we have um, learned that these schools do some things pretty consistently. We don't go into the schools looking for any particular practices, but certain things have definitely emerged from them. Um, just to give you an example of one of these schools, now as I said, um, these schools are all over the country serving different populations of students uh, in rural areas, urban areas, uh, serving high percentages of African American kids, Latino kids. Um, always low-income students. Um, this particular school is located in Alabama. It is called Cal Cadaver Elementary. Um, it has 260 kids, and 80% of whom are American Indian, 80% of whom are also low-income. Um, and this school has consistently been outperforming the state of Alabama for all students. For example, um, in 2001, um, about 94% of Cal Cedivers students were proficient in math, compared to only about 78% of students in Alabama as a whole. So here we have Native kids that are doing far better than all students in the state of Alabama. Um, also at Cal Cedivers, their teachers really don't think that it's enough to get them to that state, the kids to the state proficient level, and they really try to get them above that to an advanced level. As a result of their efforts, about 78% of low-income kids at Cal Cedivers Elementary reach the advanced level in science in fifth grade. And just to give you a comparison point, in Alabama that percentage is about 30. So about 30% wow. of low-income in the state of Alabama are reaching that advanced level in fifth grade science. Mm. So this begs the That's question, incredible. right, of what are schools like Cal Cedivar doing? Uh, and there are definitely, like I said, some things that have emerged as we have been visiting these schools that they do consistently. Um, the first of these is really that they focus on the things that they can do rather than what they can't do. I feel like that's something that we hear a whole lot. So what does that actually mean? It is just to give you an example, the principal of one of these high-performing, high-poverty schools that we have visited um, goes through this exercise with her teachers in their data meetings, 
where she, everyone comes in with a challenge that they're facing in their classroom. And then she allows teachers to just list everything that is causing that challenge. So for example, kids may not be reading enough at home, or they may lack experiences outside the community, or they may not have enough academic vocabulary, and so forth. And then they continue the conversation, and they cross off everything from the list that they can't do anything about. And they focus just on the things that they can control, for example, academic vocabulary in this case. And they come up with a very specific plan for what they're going to do to address what they can control in the building. Um, the results of, from the school have also been phenomenal over the years. Um, these schools set their goals really high, and that doesn't mean that they're teaching to the test or they're just looking at high test scores. In fact, we surveyed the principals of a lot of these schools recently um, and just asked them, what does student success look like to you? And even though all of them are clearly focused on students' academic outcomes, they also mention things like they want their kids to be critical thinkers, they want them to make progress, to communicate well, collaborate with each other, be good citizens, etc. So they're clearly looking at a larger set of outcomes than just performance on state assessments. Um, yet these kinds of outcomes, they don't leave anything about teaching and learning to chance. So there's an awful lot of teachers out there today, even brand new ones, who are left on their own to figure out what to teach, what constitutes good enough work. Um, and what this does is, well, for one, it leaves a lot of exhausted teachers out there who are trying to lesson plan totally on their own every day. Um, it also leaves us with really big variations in the quality and the rigor of the things that kids are asked to do in classrooms. And kids can only do as well as the assignments that they're given. So when you see one classroom where kids are being asked to write an essay and another classroom where kids are being asked to fill out a survey questionnaire, you know, we know we have a problem. Um, and so what these schools do is work together to arrive at consistent instruction from classroom to classroom. They have really clear and specific goals for what kids should be learning in every grade and the order in which they should learn it. They provide their teachers with instructional materials and common curriculum and assignments. In fact, teachers work together to develop curriculum and assignments. Um, they have a regular vehicle to make sure that everyone's grading in a similar way. Um, so, for example, using common assignments across different classrooms in the same grade and making sure that one teacher is not giving an A that another teacher would give a C for. Um, they constantly look at data. They check for student understanding all the time. And importantly, they're not just collecting that information, they're using it. So when they see that a student cannot solve a, a problem that they expect them to be able to solve, at a certain point in the school year, they know that student needs help and they provide it right away. Um, at the secondary school level, importantly, they give all kids the opportunity to take rigorous classes. But they don't just put kids in a class by a given name. They make sure that, that those classes are rigorous and that kids have the supports that they need in order to succeed in them. 
So for example, if a student is taking Algebra 2 but may not have all of the math they need to be successful in that class, they might actually put that student in a support class at the same time so that they learn the content that they need to help them be successful in Algebra 2. Um, and then importantly, very importantly, they know how much teachers matter and they act on that knowledge. The first, they know who their strongest teachers are. Um, they're in classrooms, administrators at these schools are in classrooms all the time, observing teachers, providing feedback, and they really have a good sense of which teachers are uh, particularly successful with certain content and so forth. They also make sure that the students who are struggling the most get the strongest teachers. And how often do you see the situation in a high school where your brand new rookie teacher, just first year teaching, is being put in a classroom where they're teaching remedial math or remedial English, right? Probably the two most difficult classes in the entire school. Um, these schools would never do that. They make sure that their strongest teachers are teaching the kids who are struggling the most. Um, they're also very intentional in how they support and how they develop their teachers. You know, oftentimes when we talk about improving the quality of teachers, the conversation just turns to how do we replace people? These yeah. schools know, as one of the principals say, that they can't hire and fire their way out of this issue. It's really about yeah. also working with the folks that, um, that are in the building and providing them with the support that they need to be successful. Um, so that's just, a, that's just a brief overview. It's really hard to do justice to all of the things that these schools do. And we've got staff at the Education Trust who have actually written a few books profiling these schools over the years. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's a great working list for, for educators who are listening, um, you know, to, to wrap their minds around how to, how to begin to be a model school. Um, you know, and, and your first point about focusing on what can be achieved and doing that, um, you know, I was reading something recently that, that said, you know, being able to focus on, so, you know, if you've got a classroom where 20% of your children are reading on grade level and 80% are not, uh, rather than focusing on how do I, how do I, bridge this gap of, you know, the, getting the 80% of students in my classroom on grade level, focus instead on what has worked and what is working for those 20% of students who are on grade level um, and incorporate those methods in your, your teaching practices and classroom management and everything else, um, and that will benefit then every child in the classroom and hopefully begin to, you know, if you're thinking positively rather than negatively from the in the first instance and that should should help in your um teaching methodology. Um so I you know there's been a lot of conversation about as you know you all know very well about the school to prison pipeline and uh high stakes testing and, and we're beginning to see I think a movement of um students and parents and teachers who are coming together and, you know, really joining forces to say this is what we want to see. We certainly believe in accountability. We believe in high performance. Uh, and we want to make sure that we are doing it in a healthy way for students. Um, and so it's a real, it feels like a real grassroots movement. 
And, uh, Natasha, you talked earlier about some of the work that is happening in those urban centers for uh, Native populations of students where, you know, they are more highly concentrated. How else can Native families and communities be empowered to take this data that you've uncovered and use it to their advantage? So I think the first thing, and this really is a responsibility of schools and school districts and states, is to make sure that all parents and all members of the community have access to clear, transparent data on how all students are performing. You know, I ought to be able to go to any school's report card and understand how are Native students doing in key subjects, reading, math, science, social studies. Um, have they improved over time or not? Are students making growth, right, even if they are not yet proficient, are they making growth toward proficiency? Are they graduating? You know, before they graduate, have they had an opportunity to take these rigorous courses? There's a ton of data that parents ought to have access to in a clear, kind of transparent and understandable way, right? Um, because those are data that can help parents to make informed choices on behalf of their students and on behalf of their communities. It's also absolutely incumbent on schools to make the school building a kind of welcoming, positive environment for families and members of the community, right? You know, we have the opportunity to visit a lot of schools, and oftentimes it's, it's tough to get in, right? It's tough to get in, uh, into a classroom. If you are in a classroom, you're treated, frankly, as a nuisance rather than as someone who could really contribute to what's going on in that class. If you think about a parent who may not have had a particularly good, you know, experience with the school system themselves, and then to be treated like that um, when they're trying to uh, visit their school student or their student's school, um, you can see where that disengagement would happen, right? So making school a really open, welcoming place um, that allows parents to bring whatever skills and expertise they can to bear um, is certainly another really important thing. Making sure that uh, parents have access to information at times when they can actually go, right? You know, we hear this kind of concern about, oh, parents don't go to parent-teacher conferences. Well, when are they being scheduled? Um, there's a school that we work with in rural Arkansas where the vast majority of parents work at a poultry processing plant. And so what they've done is they've scheduled their parent-teacher conferences around the sh various shifts at that plant, and they have multiple kind of opportunities for parents to come. They also do, this is a school that's serving pr uh, predominantly Latino populations, so they do all of their kind of information sessions and conferences in both English and Spanish so that parents really can get in and engage. And then they're quite clear with parents about here's what you can do to help your students. You know, read to them, right? We don't expect you to, you know, do your students' homework. In fact, we don't want you to do your students' homework. We want the student to do their homework, but we do <laughs> hope that you can create, a, you know, space for them at home that, you know, is conducive to doing the work um, and that you read to them. I think there's one mm -hmm. other really key point, though, which is that schools should not and they cannot use kind of a lack of parent or community engagement as an excuse for not doing what they need to do on behalf of their students. Um, another mm -hmm. school that we work with quite a bit 
um, you know, has a very, very high transient rate and mobility rate, and is working with just exceptionally stressed families. That principal and her leadership have de- team have decided, you know what, you know what we're asking of parents? Get your kid to school. We'll take care of the rest, mm-hmm. rest because we know just how stressed you are and that we know that if we're going to ask you to do too much more, frankly, it's not going to be done. So get your kid to school on time. We'll take care of the academics. Trust us on this. Um, and that's a school that's really developed actually a quite strong, trusting, and supportive relationship with their families and communities. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we uh, there's a lot of talk, I think, about cultural proficiency in the classroom and cultural competence in the classroom, um, particularly when it comes to uh, encouraging, you know, black male leadership in the classroom rather than penalizing black boys for, um, you know, developmentally appropriate behaviors. What role do you think cultural proficiency plays in the classroom in uh, school administration and in policy development for Native students? I think that cultural proficiency, you know, with any group of students, Native, Latino, African American, you know, immigrant students, um, can and should be really complementary to rigorous academic instruction. Um, Schools Mm -hmm. have the opportunity, right, to um, draw on their students' strengths. So, you know, if those are kind of speaking another uh, language at home, rather than thinking of that as a detriment, thinking of that as a real kind of attribute that those students bring, and thinking about the ability to expose all students in a school to a particular language, right, because we know language development and exposure to kind of other languages can be really beneficial to kids. I just had the opportunity to be in a school um, this past week that's serving a huge kind of immigrant population. I think they have, you know, 17 different um languages represented among the families of their uh, students. And this is a school that really sees that as an attribute and a way for their schools to learn, uh, their students to learn about and celebrate other cultures and really to to develop some of that um, cultural understanding, background knowledge. It's going to help them to be stronger readers and problem solvers and critical thinkers. Um, These things can really operate hand in hand. Uh, we know, for example, that Calcedeva, the school that Natasha mentioned um, that's in Alabama and that's serving a large Native population, is working specifically to ensure that students learn their Native, the, uh, native language as well as English. And they celebrate kind of the, the culture, cultural celebrations of the Native population. So they're doing powwows. They're learning about the ways in which their ancestors lived. All of these things are in... Um, conjunction with and supplement the rigorous instruction in reading and mathematics and writing and social studies and science. Um, Where we do get concerned is when it's kind of pitted as one or the other, right? We can either have culturally kind of competent classrooms or we can have rigorous, challenging Mm -hmm. academic That absolutely need not be the case. There are schools all across the country that are um, putting both of those pieces of the puzzle together and really benefiting their students and um, getting kind of high outcomes as a result. Mm -hmm. So in the last couple of minutes, will you just tell us about the feedback that you've gotten from Native leaders and communities about this state of education brief? 
You know, I think the general sense that we've gotten in terms of the feedback has been, um, you know, a recognition that there has to be more attention on Native student achievement, and also that you really do need to start with the data and to really understand the patterns of what's been going on in order to be able to turn those trends around. Mm -hmm. I want I think to underscore this notion. You know, these are some challenging data, right? Um, and one could, you know, take this and to say, hey, you know, wow, the Education Trust is really trying to kind of um, uh, put down public schools, right, or, you know, mm -hmm. have a negative message about this community, and that is absolutely not the intent of this work, and it's not the way that the work has been received. There's really a hunger for attention to this issue and a hunger for kind of an honest, and well-informed conversation that starts with the data, as difficult as those data may be. Right. I certainly appreciate the data, and you know, it, this is a conversation I've been wanting to try to have on on the show for a while. And I, uh, I think that your uh, the brief was timely. Uh, it was. Um, you're right that the data is stark, and and I think it will really call attention to some of the things that we need to do to be that that model school for all of our children and, and to make sure that all of our children have access to success opportunities, pathways to success. So um, I appreciate the work that Education Trust does. Uh, I want to thank you both. Natasha Ushomirsky is the author of the State of Education for Native Students report from the Education Trust, and Daria Hall is also from the Education Trust. Thank you so much to you both for being here. Thanks, Allison. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Audience, you are now you are now officially certified know-it-alls about the state of education for Native students. Remember to follow Know-it-all, the ABCs of education on Blog Talk Radio. Follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter. Find ABC on Facebook. And read my blog at AllisonBrownConsulting.com. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful week. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.